welcome to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. I live in Joshua Tree, and I'm pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. I've recently told you a Norwegian fairy tale called Valamon the White Bear King, and in telling that story, I remarked on the similarities between it and a couple of others that I've told on this program, namely the Maiden King, which was the story that had Ivan and the Firebird in it, and Psyche and Eros, which is a very old story, one that definitely uh, originated closer to a myth, to closer to a myth form, I think. In bringing up those other stories, I suggested that these commonalities exist because the themes and the metaphors in these stories are archetypal. That is, they are shared patterns in the psyche. They're part of our collective symbolic language, something that we come into the world relating to, if not completely, understanding. As part of this conversation, I've also suggested that this is one reason why we shouldn't relegate fairy tales to childhood or consider them to be just, quote-unquote, entertainment. Because they revolve around an essential task that confronts each of us to grow up, basically, and to become fully conscious of who and what we are, to integrate our capacities. There are many, many fairy tales that speak to this, and the theme in the stories that I just mentioned is the union of the masculine and feminine energies in our own beings. There are some other ways to spin this. So, by way of kind of making my point and helping you connect the dots a little bit, today I'm going to tell you the story of how Siddhartha became the Buddha. Yes, that's the story of his enlightenment. I think you're going to be amazed at the parallels between this story about a historical figure and the other stories, the fairy tales that I have been telling on this program. And my point is not to literalize the symbols and prove anything uh, and say, okay, this, this means that it absolutely happened because we say it about the Buddha. No, in fact, actually, the reverse. That the Buddha story has a form similar to fairy tales, I think tells us that this pattern is so fundamental to our way of narrating important life events, mythologizing, if you will, that we do it across cultures and time again and again and again and again. And this is important to human consciousness and human concerns. So if I have some time at the end, I will lay some of this out for you a little bit, but I think it'll be pretty easy for any of you who have some familiarity with fairy tales, which is hopefully everybody who's been listening to this program, to see uh, the parallels between the life of Siddhartha Gautama as he became the Buddha and fairy tales. 
So I invite you to sit back and enjoy the story and see what you can come up with. Many, many years ago, there was a king and a queen in one region of the country who were expecting the birth of their first child. And the queen, whose name was Maya, was very, very beautiful. During this time, she had a very strange dream in which a baby elephant blessed her with his trunk. And this was understood to be a very auspicious sign, to say the least. Now, as was the custom of the day, when the time grew near for Queen Maya to have her baby, she traveled to her father's kingdom for the birth. But it was a rather long journey, and during this time, her time, but during the long journey, her birth pains began, and she ended up stopping in a small town where her handmaidens helped her into a small grove of trees and using a low branch to support her, she delivered her baby, a baby son. They say that this birth was nearly painless and that afterwards a gentle rain fell on the mother and her newborn child to cleanse them. It was also said much later on that this baby, baby boy, was born fully awake, that he could speak and that he could stand and even walked a short distance in each of the four directions shortly after he was delivered. They named him Siddhartha, which means he who has attained his goals. Now, the queen and her new baby returned home to their kingdom. And sadly, very sadly, his mother died only seven days after the birth. And Siddhartha was then raised by his mother's sister. His father, the king, decided to consult a well-known soothsayer or prophet about the future of his son. And the prophet told him that this little boy was going to be one of two things. He could either become a great king a very great king, maybe even an emperor, uniting nearby lands, or he could become a great sage and savior of humanity. Now, the father, the king, was very eager that Siddhartha should become a king like himself, that he should become a king and maintain and even expand upon all that the father had built and accumulated, and so the father was determined to shield his son from anything that might encourage him to take up the religious life. And so Siddhartha was brought up in a very cloistered and protected environment. He was kept in one of the three palaces. He was not allowed to go out and roam around or go anywhere, really, by himself. And the king took very great care to make sure that he was never, ever, ever permitted to see 
the elderly, the sickly, the dead, or any monks or priests or anybody who had become religious. So Siddhartha grew up in an environment where there was only beauty and health and youth. And this was all that he knew. The young prince grew up to be a very strong and handsome young man. And because he was a prince of the warrior caste, he was trained as a warrior in all of the arts of war. And so when it was time for him to marry, he won the hand of a beautiful princess of a neighboring kingdom by winning a series of sports competitions. His wife's name was Yoshidhara, and they got married when they were both 16 years old, as was the custom. Now, Siddhartha continued living this life of protected luxury, but he started getting increasingly restless and curious about the world beyond the palace walls and finally went to his father and demanded that he should be allowed to go out and see the people and the lands because he was ultimately going to be their king and finally his father agreed or seemingly agreed we should say to let Siddhartha go out and take a little tour but he continued his subterfuge And again, he went to really great lengths to plot out the map, and he decreed that only the young and healthy people could greet the prince. And so anyway, Siddhartha did in fact get outside of the palace, but he did not really have the experience that he suspected. He suspected that he wanted. So one day, completely burning with curiosity. Prince Siddhartha asked a friend of his, a charioteur, to take him on a series of secret rides in the chariot through the countryside. On their first journey, he saw an old man. And he was so amazed and confused that when the old man started running away from the chariot, he jumped out and ran after him and questioned him to find out who and what he was. On their second ride out around the countryside, he saw a very sick man, and he followed the trail of this sick man to another household and yet another household where various people were afflicted and so became acquainted with the notion of disease and illness. And on the last trip that he took in the chariot, he saw a funeral and a corpse. He had never ever before in his life seen death. And so he asked his friend and his squire, Chandaka, the man who was taking him around in the chariot, the meaning of all of these things. And his friend told him that this was the simple truth of life, a simple truth that Siddhartha should have already known 
which is that all of us get sick, we get old, and eventually we die. Now on this last trip, they also crossed paths with a wandering ascetic. And an ascetic is someone who has renounced the world and is seeking relief from fear and of death and suffering by wandering, you know, as a, as a beggar monk. And again, Siddhartha was confused. He didn't understand what this man was doing, and his friend explained it to him. And as the prince watched the monk, he noted the very peaceful look on this man's face. And that look stayed with him for a long time. The years went by, but at the age of of 29, Siddhartha came to realize that he could not be happy living as he had been. He couldn't forget what he had seen outside the palace walls, and even the birth of his son couldn't distract him, nor could the love and devotion of his beautiful wife, a wife that he truly loved in return. He had discovered suffering, and so now he wanted nothing more than to discover how suffering might be overcome. One night, Prince Siddhartha wandered the palace courtyard after a party. He saw the dancers and the revelers sprawled in sleep, exhausted from their good time, and he knew that one day they would all die and turn to dust. That was the night that he left. He slipped quietly into the room where his wife and newborn son were sleeping, kissed them goodbye, and slipped out of the palace with his friend Chandara on his favorite horse. When they got away from the palace and out into the countryside, he gave away his rich clothing. He cut off his long hair. He gave his horse to his friend and told him to go back to the palace alone. Dressed as a beggar, Siddhartha then went to see two famous gurus of the day. And he studied with these men for a while but found their practices lacking. He was not gaining the understanding that he was searching. So Siddhartha began wandering. He wandered alone for a number of years when he came to a very pleasant hermitage by a stream where there were five other mendicants, that is, beggar monks, practicing and studying a way of discipline that was based on progressively uh, severe fasting. And so he joined this group and he practiced with them for six years. And ultimately, he was eating a single grain of rice and drinking a single drop of water. And then finally, for the last two years of his studies with them, he didn't touch anything at all, 
no food or drink. As a result, his body completely shriveled up. He, he looked like a bag of bones. And when he touched his stomach, he could almost feel his spine sticking through on the other side. All of his hair fell out. His skin got very wrinkled and dry. And yet, despite all of this effort, nothing was really happening. In fact, despite all of his severe austerity and discipline, and maybe even because of it, his body was even harder and harder and harder for him to ignore. And he was still plagued by craving. At this point, he understood that craving was connected to suffering. But somehow, simply taking less and taking less and taking less did not kill those desires. In fact, he seemed even more conscious of himself and his craving than ever before. So finally, one day, it dawned on him that he had gone from one extreme to the other, that he had gone from the extreme of his rich and luxurious, rather hedonistic life in the palace to this, to this practice that was almost killing him, and that the middle way, the way between these two extremes, must be the path to enlightenment. One day soon after this realization, a peasant girl came by and she saw this starving monk and she took pity on him and begged him to eat some of her milk rice. And Siddhartha did. He ate and he drank and he immediately felt much, much, much better. So much better that he even took a bath in the river while the other five ascetics who he had been studying with saw him, and they concluded that he had just given up and gone back to the ways of the flesh, and they left him alone. But Siddhartha felt strong and clear, and he decided that he would go to the town of Bodhagaya and sit under a certain fig tree as long as it took for the answer to the problem of suffering to come to him. He sat under this tree for many days, first in deep concentration to clear his mind of all distractions, and then in mindfulness meditation, where he opened himself up to the truth. Some say that he began to recall all of his previous lives and to see everything that was going on in the entire universe. And on the full moon of May, with the rising of the morning star, Siddhartha finally understood the answer to the question of suffering and became the Buddha, which means awake, awakened one. At that moment, though, it is said that Mara, a demon whose name means destruction, tried to prevent the completion of this event 
First, Mara sent his three beautiful daughters named Desire, Fulfillment, and Regret. Or perhaps Future, Present, and Past to entice Siddhartha to move from his seat, but he had so much disengaged himself from lust and yearning and from all that these beautiful women represented that he remained unmoved. So next, the Mara sent storms and armies of demons that pelted Siddhartha with rocks And he tried to frighten him. If desire didn't work, maybe fear would move Siddhartha from his place beneath the tree. But still, Siddhartha remained completely calm. Finally, Mara tried to ensnare Siddhartha in his own ego by appealing to his pride. Why aren't you back in your palace, prince, he said, enjoying the earthly powers that you have been given? The seat of enlightenment rightfully belongs to me. My spiritual accomplishments are much greater than yours. And when he said this, all of his monstrous soldiers cried out together, I am his witness in support of the demon Mara. So Mara challenged Siddhartha and said, Who will speak for you? Who is your witness? And Siddhartha, having conquered all of the temptations offered by the demon, touched the ground with one hand and asked the earth to be his witness. And the earth itself roared, I bear you witness. Mara disappeared in a flash. And as the morning star rose in the sky, Siddhartha Gautama realized enlightenment and became the Buddha. Amazing story, isn't it? Amazing story. Well, so let me just recap a couple of things here for you. And if you need to, you can go back to the archives of uh, Valamon the Bear King, which is available online. If you Google Myth in the Mojave, you can find it. If you want to go into this a little bit deeper on your own. First, we have this potentially special birth. The mother dies right away. The boy is raised by a father who has his own ideas about who the boy should be and tries to prevent him from realizing his destiny. He goes to great lengths to shield him and keep his son on the path that he's chosen for him. But destiny dictates otherwise. And destiny comes from within Siddhartha, his restlessness and his longing to know, to know, to know, to know. And it comes from the outside. His friend didn't plot a particular path to take Siddhartha to see the elderly and the sick and the dying. 
They were just out in the world as it is. And he happened upon those things. And what he was looking for and what he saw in those external events came together. And still he waited. He waited for a number of years, you know, and I'm thinking of uh, the story of of uh, the Maiden King and Ivan and how he goes back to sleep after he meets the Maiden King. He's not ready yet. And so there's a period of meditating on what he's seen and allowing himself at some level to be seduced by all, everything he's got. I mean, this is a guy who has everything. He's handsome, he's intelligent, he's sensitive, he's rich, he has a beautiful wife and a son and power and servants to take care of him. But ultimately, he leaves. Probably for reasons that he can't even really fully explain. And he sacrifices all of it. Great sacrifice. And sacrifice on the part of his family too, which isn't part of this story, but I think it's worth noting. He spends years and years walking, studying with other teachers, days and days and days of suffering and monotonous practice. And then he realizes that he's got it wrong and he takes a new course and someone appears to help him, a young girl with milk rice. And she strengthens his body and his resolve, and he makes that final push under the Bodhi tree. Where, you notice, his temptation comes in the form of three. The beautiful daughters, the scary demon soldiers and the thunderstorms, and then ultimately the appeal to his pride. Of course, this is not terribly unlike uh, the devil, the story of the devil appearing to Jesus when Jesus is out in the wilderness for 40 days. Another archetypal pattern. So you see through all of these things, these, this similar narrative structure. Now pointing out similarities in these narratives, of course, was the great work of Joseph Campbell, who many of you know, and the monomyth that he identified, the hero's journey. And Campbell talked a lot about this story as an example of the hero's journey. And it certainly can be read that way. Well, so that's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. If you have questions about today's program or mythology in general, you can find Myth in the Mojave on Facebook. You can also contact me through my website, mythicmojo.com. And if what I'm talking about here interests you, you might want to sign up for the Mythic Mojo Mostly Weekly email dose, because at Mythic Mojo, what I'm doing is talking about the themes that I discuss on this program in much greater depth, and I'm actually getting ready to launch something that I'm calling the Course in Applied Mythology. How can you use mythology and insights from stories to understand yourself and your life and our culture? Getting ready to launch that very soon, and I'm very excited about it. So I'll be talking to you more about Mythic Mojo as the days, the weeks, I guess, this is weekly, the weeks go by. I want to remind you that Radio Free Joshua Tree and Myth in the Mojave are made possible by generous donations from Mojave Wi-Fi, Pappy and Harriet's, Peter Spur Realty, and Joshua Treats Ice Cream. 
and listeners like you. So please, if you have not gone to our website at www.rfjt.org and clicked on, clicked on that donate button, I hope that you'll do that. We can take donations of any size and appreciate all of them. Special thanks to Travis Rosenberg for my theme music and to you for listening. Next week is the solstice. So I'm going to be talking about the solstice and fairies and the invisible world and suggesting that it's not completely nuts to open yourself up to the possibility of such things. In the meantime, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.